Well, as we come to the preaching of the Word, I'd ask that you take up your copy of God's Holy Word and turn with me there to Philippians chapter 3 as I begin reading at verse 17. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have for us a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed into his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our gracious Father in heaven, with thankful hearts, we come once again to the preaching of your word through this inspired letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church. And as we do so, we ask that you would be pleased to send your Holy Spirit to empower the preaching and to attend to the hearing that it might be a means to accomplish your will to fortify us in our work, and to lead us in the way everlasting. Take your truth in these exhortations and bring individual and specific application to each of our lives so that we may stand fast in the Lord and set our minds on the things which are above, even our heavenly citizenship. And this we ask in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. If you knew with certainty that you were about to die, how would you spend your remaining days and months? What would be on your list? Would there be places that you always wanted to visit on that list? Would there be people you'd always wanted to meet on that list? Or maybe things you always wanted to do, or perhaps the term more common today, what is on your bucket list? Well, it's one of those philosophical questions designed to get you to evaluate your life and perhaps to help you avoid regrets. However, there is a much more probing question that you should ask. What if instead you asked this question? If you knew that you were going to live forever, how would you live your life today? If I ask you that question, and I have, I wonder how your list might change. In our text this morning, this is the perspective that the Apostle Paul is challenging us with. The light of eternity cast its brightness over this 
entire section of the letter. And look, look with me, for example, at verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This, of course, is really on, only an elaboration, an application of a theme that Paul addressed earlier in chapter 3, in verses 10 through 11, where Paul wrote of his present fellowship with Christ and his future hope that he might attain to the resurrection from the dead. And in verses 12 through 16, Paul humbly admits how far he still has to go before he will be ready for glory, and yet heaven is still his destination. He reaches forward to those things which are ahead. He determines to forget his previous failures and leave them all behind. And he presses forward toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again and again, like a, like a gold thread running through the tapestry of these chapters in this little letter, there is this emphasis on heaven and the return of Christ and the coming glories that await Christians and what we, the people of God, need to understand about that is the way Paul makes use of that grand theme here in our text this morning. We need to know it is a passage, a passage about holiness, a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's about living in a manner that is well-pleasing to the Lord. It's about our weakness and our need to stand fast in the Lord. You see, eternity is to be one of our primary motives for godliness. The hope of heaven is to be a powerful motive for holiness here on earth. We are being called to live now, to live today in the light of eternity. So the question is, are you doing that? Are you living in the light of eternity? Lord Shaftesbury a 19th century Christian and evangelical member of the Church of England, whose faith and understanding of the teachings of Christ inspired him to press for numerous social reforms, including those related to child labor. He once confessed, near the end of his life, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscience hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. Not one hour. Isn't that astounding? His thoughts of the Lord, Lord's return motivated his work priorities rather than distracting him into inaction. You see, eschatology really does matter. It has consequences in the present and brings into context the scope of history of who God is and how we understand His promises for tomorrow. And that is Paul's point here in Philippians. It is the same point that is made by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, where in speaking of the day of the Lord when Christ shall come and when a new heavens and a new earth will be established, he writes, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, that is, the new heavens and the new earth, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot, and blameless. So, brothers and sisters, you are called to live and to labor in the light of eternity and to stand fast in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't 
presume upon tomorrow, nor can you rest upon the laurels of yesterday. Understand your destination, and so live as to prepare for it, even now and even today. And as we consider the text before us, we will see first that Paul returns to the importance of imitation and godly examples to the Christian, and he exhorts the church to walk in a similar manner. Secondly, he turns to a description of those who are walking contrary to godliness, characterized by worldliness and venturing headlong into hell and identifies them as enemies of the cross of Christ. And thirdly, he describes the destination of those who eagerly await the return of Jesus, whose citizenship is in heaven, and he exhorts them to stand fast in the Lord. And so first, the importance of imitation. As Paul begins this exhortation, he returns to the importance of example and imitation in verse 17. He writes, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have for us a pattern. Paul frequently provides the church glimpses into his life in order to provide instruction by his example in Christian thought and in Christian conduct. Yet he recognizes that he is not the only model that believers have before them. And so he also encourages the believers at Philippi to look around to the examples of others and follow those who have given themselves over to the passionate pursuit of maturity in Christ. And I wonder, how, how deliberately do we do that here in this church? And note that you, you do not need to find someone who has it all together or appears to be without fault. There's only one person on that list. But surely there is someone whose Christ-likeness in some area of their life is worthy of imitation. And I encourage you to look for those people. We have already seen back in verse 12 that Paul was not unaware of his shortcomings and his imperfection and his falling short of achieving spiritual maturity. Yet, he also knew the practical benefits of real-life examples. And as a result, he lives his life in an imitation of Christ for the benefit of others. And he openly discusses his own life and internal motivations for the sake of bringing others into maturity. The fact that he encourages others to serve as models reminds us that human illustrations of Christian living, imperfect as they may be, are a part of how the Holy Spirit trains us up in godliness. And I know that many of you, by your references to Christian biographies, have been inspired and motivated to a more deliberate and faithful walk with the Lord by reading and meditating upon those faithful lives. This is good and right and in perfect accord with the exhortation here in verse 17. So don't hesitate to learn from Brother Andrew or Corey Tim Boom or George Mueller and Elizabeth Elliot. Ponder the examples of Bonhoeffer and Latimer and Ridley. But most of all, and preeminently of all, look to Christ, who is your only perfect example. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, imitate me 
just as I also imitate Christ. All Christians must understand that part of their duty in this life is to open their lives to the inspection of others so that others may learn from their successes and likely also learn from their failures in pursuing Christ. So know this, when you overcome a temptation or when you put off a besetting sin, when you stumble, repent, and press on in the joy of the Lord, when you grow in your praise, thanksgiving, and adoration of God, when your quick temper diminishes and your harsh disposition softens, when you serve selflessly and give sacrificially, and even when you suffer quietly, when you speak kindness, show love, and spread good cheer, when you train up and nurture your children to love the Lord, when you love and respect your spouse, forsaking all others, when you do all these things and so many more, and you do them as, as unto the Lord in faith, you are building up the body of Christ, providing a pattern, an example for others to follow and be encouraged by. You are engaged in kingdom work and standing fast in the Lord when you do these things. Secondly, Paul describes those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 18 and 19. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. So in sharp contrast to the instances of Christian living in the previous verse, in verses 18 and 19, Paul now reminds his readers that there are many others who serve wicked paradigms. By implication, their godless, faithless lives are to be observed and avoided. And just as Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Paul also refers here to many who are headed for destruction. Destruction. The meaning of destruction is clear, is it not? The destruction that he refers to here is perdition. The destruction which consists of eternal misery in hell. And just as Jesus did, Paul indicates that there are many on this road. Many who will perish eternally. And Paul even acknowledges that he has spoken of these people often. And he is likely referring to those who are within the church as well as to those who are without the church, outside of the church. The Judaizers and all those who pervert the gospel are included in the many here. He is also speaking of those who scorn, mock, and reject the gospel outright. And as Paul considers such people whose walk in worldly wickedness heading for eternal damnation, he is grieved, grieved to the point of tears, grieved at their destination, and grieved at the ugliness of their testimony. Paul grieved that, that they had reverted from the freedom of living by grace and returning back to the slavery of living 
under the law. And he also grieved for those who loved the world and were on the path to destruction. Both of these he refers to as enemies of the cross of Christ. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Apart from the love of the Father, there is no hope. There is only the road that leads to destruction. But not only does Paul describe their destination, he describes the motivation and character of their lives. They are those whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, and who set their mind on earthly things. And I think it is best to see here this is describing two different groups, two different groups, but with the same destination of eternal destruction, but with different applications. On the one hand, the Judaizers are ready to impose Israel's kosher dietary laws on the church. Their God, their hope, and their confidence, so to speak, is their belly. They also desire a place of re- to place a requirement of circumcision upon the church. And so, in a sense, they are glorying in something that they shouldn't. Their glory is misdirected. It is contrary to the message of the gospel And as such, it is to their shame and their condemnation. And both of these errors are focused on fleshly, temporary, worldly things. What is eaten in the food laws and the visible physical evidence of circumcision. Their trust was in these things and not in the grace of Christ. But on the other hand, we can see the same description as applied to the rank pagan. The pagans are not given to legal fixation on commandment keeping, keeping, but but rather the opposite. They represent antinomianism's abandonment to lawlessness and indulgence in physical pleasure. From this perspective, their God is their belly, captures their devotion to bodily appetites, not only for food, but also wealth, power, prestige, and even sex. As though satisfying such urges were man's highest aim, and so they glory in these worldly things, even to their shame. And by the way, this is the necessary outworking of all godless natural philosophy. After all, if we are just the product of random chance and undirected processes, where natural selection is the ultimate good, then the only meaning you will find in life is that which satisfies your appetite and serves your autonomous determination of what is right and what is wrong. In essence, your God is your belly, and that is surely a puny God, if ever there was one. Both of these groups are the enemies of Christ, enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. Understand then the worldly culture in which we live today. Let us then take care with that understanding to avoid imitating their example, lest we become corrupted and influenced and persuaded of their ways. Rather, let us stand fast in the Lord Jesus Christ and place our whole trust in Him and not looking to the world for patterns, for examples, or wisdom. 
Thirdly, we turn to our heavenly citizenship. In the next two verses, Paul provides a a glorious contrast between those who only have an earthly citizenship and those whose citizenship is in heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. In verse 20, Paul declares the astonishing reality that has been his subtext throughout this paragraph. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is hard for us to grasp, but it is the truth. And yet we need to know to be a citizen of Philippi was to be a citizen of Rome, where Caesar ruled the empire with all the attendant privileges and responsibilities. So then... The Jesus followers in Philippi, whether their status in society was slave or citizen or something in between, they were citizens, and so are we, of a transcendent realm, of heaven itself, where King, their King, our King, Jesus Christ, who is infinitely mightier than any Roman Caesar, is ruling the universe. And so Paul draws the contrast between the earthly and the heavenly. First, as we have seen, he sets the the earthbound mindset of the many enemies of the cross of Christ over and against the believer's heavenly identity and citizenship. In writing to the Colossians, Paul also drew the distinction in a similar earth versus heaven terminology. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He went on to demonstrate to the Colossians that setting our minds on the things above is not, it's not escapist daydreaming, but it is instead having the beauties of heaven and heaven's king permeate and transform our lives, our loves, our values and relationships right here, right now in the present, here on earth. He continued writing, Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is the outworking of our new citizenship in heaven, of our heavenly mindedness. Because God's amazing grace has conferred on heaven's citizens unimaginable privileges, we are humbled, not haughty, patient, not proud, eager to serve, not demanding of service, outgoing toward others, 
and not turned in on ourselves. Heavenly mindedness is humility in action here on earth, serving, forgiving, loving, and all those things in everyday life. In the second contrast, Paul provides concerns the different destinies, destinies that await those whose thoughts are bound to earth and those who, whose hopes are heaven-bound. About the former, Paul states bluntly but clearly their end is destruction. For these citizens of earth, so to speak, whose perspective never rises beyond the horizon of the here and the now, the future is bleak. Their future is dark. But Jesus, by his work and example, points us to a destiny that is not bound to this earth. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus is the risen and living Lord who makes people like us, like you and like me, into citizens of heaven. In telling the story of Jesus throughout this chapter, Paul has led us through history from the past when Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and God then highly exalted him through to the present as we strain forward to seize the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And then now to the future, forward to the day when the Savior and the Lord who loved us and died and rose for us and is now working His good pleasure in us and will return from heaven, our true home, to transform these lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. And notice that Paul focuses his description of this heavenly destination not so much on a place, but rather on a person. There are other scriptures that we could turn to to give us glimpses of heaven and descriptions of the new heavens and earth, purged of sin and sorrow, that Christ's glorious return will inaugurate. But here, however, Paul wants us to see that what makes heaven heavenly what makes our citizenship a source of boundless joy is the presence of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for whom we eagerly await. And we should probably not overlook the fact that the two terms Paul uses to describe Jesus here, Savior and Lord, are the same two terms found on Roman coins referring to the emperor. Since Philippi was a Roman province, this carried meaning for them that is somewhat lost on us today. Cities throughout the empire look to Rome and to Caesar for salvation, just as many Americans today seek protection, relief, and reconstruction from the federal government. But as Christians, we have an infinitely more generous Savior than Caesar, and our Savior has brought, is bringing, and will bring an infinitely greater salvation than Rome or Washington could ever supply. Jesus, the Son of God, has brought generous relief and total rescue from all that is wrong with our lives. And our Savior has already rescued us from God's wrath on the cross, but that is not all that He has in store for His heavenly citizens he will also rescue us from mankind's rebellion, 
When He returns, He is going to raise our sin-stained, suffering, and scarred bodies from the dead. Just as He emerged triumphant from the grave on the third day with a real physical body that could never, ever be harmed by pain or disease or death, so our Savior will give us glorious bodies like His. How often, how often do you pause to think about that? No more muscle aches, broken bones, bad knees, arthritis, memory loss, indigestion, heart disease, chronic pain, or cancer, and the list goes on. Best of all, best of all, no more appetites bent upon guilt-inducing self-indulgence. We will have a body wired to desire what our Creator designed for us, what He is pleased to give to us, and what He is pleased to see us enjoy forever and ever. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Then alongside the title Savior, Paul places the title Lord. The residents of the Roman Empire, whether citizens or slave, had been taught to call Caesar Lord. Along with their dependence upon the emperor's generosity as Savior came the demand to submit to his authority as sovereign Lord. Christians, too, must submit to governmental authorities ordained by God, but we have an infinitely mightier, more majestic Lord. In verse 20, Paul echoes the confession he made from chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul also underscores the implications of Jesus' title Lord by describing the transformation of our lowly bodies to resemble His glorious resurrection body in verse 21, writing, according to the working, the working, that is, the power and authority by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Our new glorious bodies, replica, replicas of His resurrection splendor, are only part of the vision of the future that Paul now brings into view. We will inhabit a new world, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, as Peter describes it, in which everything, absolutely everything, is subject to Jesus, the last Adam. The psalmist wrote in wonder at the honor that God has lavished on humanity. You have put all things under His feet. The author of the letter to the Hebrews shows that his statement is not a nostalgic glance back at some paradise lost, but rather a preview of the world to come to which Jesus is leading his brothers and sisters, having put all things under him and leaving nothing that is not under him. Hebrews 2. When our Savior and Lord appears from heaven, we will receive bodies impervious to the hurts of this earth and this age. Better yet, all the current sources of pain themselves will be gone. No more tears or mourning or crying or pain. No more death and no more curse. Dear friends, let me ask you this question. Do you trust Jesus? Is He not only your Savior, but also your Lord? Do you trust Him? If your answer is yes, then this is your destination. You are a citizen of heaven. 
And so in the very next verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul brings a logical conclusion to his exhortation. The exhortation to follow his example and the example of other godly brothers and sisters. He tells us how we are to walk according to truth, having the mind of Christ and not according to worldliness as enemies of the cross, or being governed by fleshly appetites while on the road to destruction. For that's not our destination. We are citizens of heaven. We have a Lord and Savior who has the authority and power to transform our feeble, broken, earthly bodies into the likeness of His glorious body. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, he concludes, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Stand fast in the Lord. Beloved, brothers and sisters of Heritage Church, stand fast in the Lord. Let your values and behavior befit your status as citizens of heaven. Stand fast as citizens of heaven by living this life day by day in humble patience, eager hope, and in selfless service to others, even as King Jesus, our Lord and Savior, humbly served us, His Beloved. Stand fast in the Lord, repenting quickly and completely of all your sins and looking to Jesus to wash you clean in His blood. Brothers and sisters, stand fast in the Lord. Persevere, pursue Christ, His righteousness. Cling to the cross. Believe, hope, and trust in the gospel for all of life to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, as we consider our weakness and the temptations that daily, even continually surround us, we confess our utter and complete need of a Savior. Help us to stand fast in the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep us safe from the enemy who would delight to deceive and even destroy us and those whom we love. Fill us with the hope of heaven and grant us all humility to submit to the Lordship of Jesus in every part of our life without exception. We look to you, O Lord, asking that you would save us to the uttermost. This we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom, for we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.